You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 229. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com for our Your Stock Artake segment, and we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. We have a busy show for you this week, returning from our research trip to LA. I begin with great news of a takeover bid for H2O Innovations, Inc., symbol HEO in the TSX, a company that has been on our Canadian small cap growth stock focused by portfolio since August 2019, when it's recommended at a price of $1.16. H2O is a strong, growing, unique water solutions company. This past week, a New York-based private equity firm announced a takeover transaction at a price of $4.25, representing a premium of 68% to to the prior closing price and a gain of 266% from our initial recommendation price. The bid will likely be an excellent exit point for clients in a tough market. Aaron has put together some comments on the bond market sell-off with the U.S. Federal Reserve signaling that rates may remain high for longer as economic growth and the job market continues to be robust, and inflation remains above target. Brett takes a look at the curious case of VLAN Inc., symbol VLN on the TSX, which operates a rather non-eventful business as a producer of high, highly engineered industrial valves for the oil and gas, nuclear, and other industries. This year, the company's shares have been on a roller coaster ride, jumping over 100% in February on a takeover bid, only to fall right back to earth this past week, as the bid was scuttled by the French government rejecting the acquisition because of commitments to reduce all risks associated with the deal, they were not sufficient by the parties involved, says the French government. Now, Brett reviews the curious case and whether or not VLAN shares which trade at less than half the bid price are an opportunity. Finally, Brennan reviews RE Royalties Limited, symbol RE on the TSX Venture, a company which we sat down with last week at our conference in California. RE acquires revenue-based royalties from renewable energy generation facilities by providing a non-dilutive royalty financing solution to privately held and publicly traded renewable energy generation and development companies. The stock pays a 6.4% dividend. Bren gives you an overview on the business and our current thoughts. So let's get to the show. I'm going to welcome my co-host, Mr. Aaron Dunn and the Killer Bees, Brett and Brennan. How are you guys doing? Recovering from your uh, trip with me. To yep. California. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Glad to what be was home. your highlight of the trip, gentlemen? Um, the highlight of my trip? Well, I mean, it has to be Disneyland. I mean, how, how can it not be? Um, yes. You know, for I, those I, that don't know, I took these two young men to uh, Disneyland. I take Ryan actually means force them to go because they weren't it's really true. that interested in Kicking and screaming. Them. Kicking and yeah. screaming. I took them there. Uh, we had a day uh, in between that we could kind of settle down in there and i said well it's 45 minutes away you guys have never been we're going and uh we forced some uh basically gravel or u.s gravel into brett 
and he was game went on basically all the rides i think but one brennan threw up several times but we won't talk about that i think these are lies did you go on the little mermaid ride that was brennan's wish and i had to deny it i'm sorry Um, i've been on it 48 times in a row with the little ones so i said (laughs) yeah i like the little mermaid because there's never a line you can just rest and chill (laughs) just chill it was it was actually quite warm down there it it got up to almost 30 degrees i think uh when we're at the park but i mean it is, you know, and this Disneyland, was all for research, warmer, right? Because Disney is a public company. Well, you know, so. of course, that's what we yeah. did down there, and it was, um, to be honest, it was not as busy as other times I've been. So, but it well, was still, nice. so yeah, significantly. Uh, by the end, we did wait about an hour and, and a half for one of the rides, but um, it was worth it, I think. So, and what were your favorite day. rides, gentlemen? I think mine was the Cars ride because it was yeah. like in between like a roller coaster so you did get like some of that thrill but you're also going through like some of these like slower dark moments or like in the caves or whatever mm-hmm. where, like you see the cars talking and, and it actually looked really really good so i thought that that was really cool but the star wars one that we did was star awesome. wars rise is pretty cool that, yeah. that's probably what i like I, I did actually <laughs> like the the guardians of the galaxy the huge drop after dark it was uh pretty crazy up and down that one messed with me the most for sure brett what about you what was your favorite probably the star wars one as well i would yeah. say yeah. yeah i do always like a water ride so i always like the grizzly mountain mm-hmm. just because i like floating around in water and i and it was sad to like the uh splash mountain is no longer there they're converting it to a tiana ride we won't get into why but um it you know i i, I miss that one it's the first one i ever went on with uh, my daughter first roller coaster she w- ever went on so i miss that it's not there i hope it's you get drenched on that me. ride you oh, can yeah on splash mountain yeah or which grizzly mountain or splash grizzly. no splash you do we didn't get on it yeah mm-hmm. one time we had to buy our new shoes because we were there in december and it was a little chilly <laughs> she's just absolutely soaked but it was good times. Was One good thing times. too, like of course, I always want to plug Saskatchewan and Canada, wherever, wherever I can. Literally, the first ride that we went on, we sat down with these people on the Grizzly, and they, uh, the ladies, was from Vancouver, but originally born and raised in uh, Saskatoon. So yeah, it's it was quite just the funny. coincidence. Yeah, we literally go all the way down to California, and on our first ride, we sit with somebody who, uh, yeah, was born and raised. And what did you say Vancouver. right when you got off that ride, the first ride of the day, Brennan? Uh, do you want to repeat I, that? Reminds you of Saskatoon? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I was like, I, I said to Ryan, I was like, you know, I could go, I could be golfing right now. That's what I said to him. Uh, and he, he didn't uh, take to that very, very nicely. We left him in a bathroom and ran off and he was done. But uh, segueing to, no, we did interview about uh, the next day. We did about 12, you know, plus companies interviewed uh, down there. Brennan's going to talk about one of them today, some interesting companies, some that we've uh, talked to in the past, some new companies. So it was a beneficial conference from that perspective, uh, getting to know some of the businesses down there, which was good to see couple companies under coverage and as well like this is like a teaser for a future episode uh we did speak to uh verd agritech potash out of brazil and uh it was an interesting conversation to say the least so uh you know we'll we, we will update save, uh, our pa- uh, save our powder for the next episode exactly it's we'll true. save our powder because yes it was quite an interesting conversation um but there were some good companies that we talked to as well so yeah for uh, sure it was awesome now we uh just to quickly segue in uh at while we were there while we were actually in meetings uh last week uh one of our companies from our canadian small cap growth stock 
research a focus buy was uh, subject to a takeover bid. And I'm going to go over that quickly today. That company is H2O Innovation, symbol HEO on the TSX. Now trades at $4.17, $375 million market cap. What do they do? They're a water solutions company focused on providing best-in-class technologies and services to customers in three areas. That'll be water technology and services that applies to membrane technology and engineering expertise to deliver equipment and services to municipal and industrial water waste and water reuse customers. Number two would be its specialty product segment. It's a set of businesses that manufacture and supply a complete line of specialty chemical, consumables, and engineered products for global water treatment industry. And number three would be O&M or operations and maintenance, which provides contract operations and association ser- associated services for water and wastewater treatment systems. So last week, October 3rd, 2023, H2O announced that it had entered into a definitive agreement with Ember, an entity controlled by funds managed by Ember Infrastructure Management, essentially a New York-based private equity firm, at a price of $4.25. That represented a 68% premium to the prior closing price and a gain of 266% from our initial recommendation price of about $1.16. The valuation on that transaction, uh, HEO trades with a trailing EV to EBITDA multiple of around 20 uh, trailing price to CFO or cash flow from operations of 13 and a trailing price to adjusted earnings of about 48.1. Our take here quickly, overall and in consideration of the current multiples in the general and small cap markets, the offer appears to be relatively fair from a valuation perspective. We have just released our full update on HEO or H2O to clients with our full recommendation on what should be done with their shareholdings in the near and midterm, taking into consideration the 30-day go shop period, which is part of the deal. Ultimately, we see this deal or a potential subsequently higher offer as an excellent exit point from what has been a great investment in H2O over the past four years with a return of 266%. It illustrates the type of strong returns that can be made by investing in high quality growth oriented Canadian small cap companies. Uh, As a side note, our clients also received a list of five strong growth oriented small caps to redeploy their gains in over the next one to three months. So a solid gain here and our clients are getting those five companies that we think can be the next HEO. Uh, over the next one to four years uh, to invest or reinvest that capital into. So it's a good outcome for sure. And we'll continue to watch to see if there's any subsequent uh, bids for the company. And and the acquisition valuation, you were saying 20 times EBITDA? Yeah, in that range. Yeah, 20 times trailing. That's a good premium valuation, especially for a small cap company. It's interesting, this company too. uh, When I interviewed them four and five years ago, um, one of the, one of the takeaways from that interview, cause you always talk about what, you know, what are you looking to do two years out, three years out, four years out? And, um, you know, is there a potential exit point that the company would be looking at? You know, what would that look like? What range would that look like at the time? They said, well, we won't be taken, you know, completely seriously until we hit the 200 plus million dollar market cap or revenue run rate uh trailing 12 months they're at 253 so you know they crossed that 200 200 annual revenue range mark over the past uh year and then uh it looks like as they said 
uh, private equity got quite interested in the business at that point and uh, a takeover is, is the result. And it doesn't always line up perfectly like that. But in this case, uh, you know, in my notes from back when we originally recommended them, uh, part of it was at some point a business like this uh, could be a takeover target. And that's what we suggested in the initial report. I've talked about that all along the process and the company received that bid. Again, given the overall market conditions weaker uh, for the small cap segment, this is a you know good solid exit point. And uh, we've recommended for our clients what to do in that research report that we released uh, today, or yeah. probably this podcast goes out a couple of days later. So a couple of days ago. Yeah. And clients are up, what is it? 290% since our initial recommendation. In yeah. 260 to 290. Yeah. I mean, w- w- the, the stock initially went down when we initially recommended it. So there was an opportunity to actually buy it, you know, in the dollar range for some time then as well. So offered good solid value there. The company's grown uh, every year, grown its revenues, which is what we like to see. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is a good solution or a, a good exit point really for the business. Uh, you know, there is that 30 day go shop period. We detailed that in our report and we gave our advice on what to do at that point. But to just give you an idea of where this company has come in 2019, when we looked at our 2018, uh, just under a hundred million in revenue. So 99 went to 118, then 133, 144 the next year, 184, uh, this past year, 253, and that's on the trailing. So trailing basis, 253 million. So it's crossed that 200 million mark every year, growing that top line and providing good cash flow. So yeah, it, it was a matter of time, likely before a transaction like this happened, and it uh, it kind of came to fruition the way that management originally had hoped it would, and which is excellent to see. All right, we can move on to our next segment. Aaron, you're going to talk about the bond market a bit of a... Yeah, we're going to switch gears here a little bit out of equities, although I will do a bit of a comparison with with equities. Um, But we're going to talk about bonds and and specifically what's been in the news lately, which is um, bond sell-off or a spike in bond yields. Uh, U.S. 30-year yields um, hitting a 16-year high. So this is uh, this has been on the minds of um, of the market uh, recently. Uh, right now, the thirty year U.S. yield has reached four point nine five percent. So this is this is the highest it's been since two thousand seven. Um, and some of the reasons for that uh, include the Federal Reserve signaling that rates may remain higher for longer, um, and as well um, strengthen the job market and the overall economy, which is causing inflation to remain above target. There's also the government uh, spending as well and increasing debt. And uh, interesting to note is that the U.S. federal government is planning to issue um, or planning to issue $1 trillion in government debt in the fourth quarter of this year. And this is the first quarterly increase in U.S. government debt bond issues um, in more than two years. So if we just take a look at where um, bond yields have been, I have a, a chart of the Canada 10-year government bond yield. Now, I'm going to switch back a little bit um, from U.S. to Canadian bonds. Really, the t- trajectory has been relatively the same. And that's that since uh, since bottoming out in 2020, uh, around the, the time of the COVID pandemic, um, when it was reaching its height, uh, we've seen basically just a, a pretty much consistent increase in bond yields over that period of time. So 10-year government bond yields uh, around 2020 were about half a percent, so well under 1%, and now pushing upwards at about 4%. So this is one of the biggest increases 
in bond yields and interest rates that we've seen in uh, in several decades, as a matter of fact. So we're going to talk a little bit about why this is important, why investors might want to pay attention to this. Um, but before I do that, I just want to get into a little bit about how bonds work so that people can understand some of the mechanics of the system. So the way a bond works is when you purchase a bond, um, you're getting a fixed coupon or interest payment until the time that that bond matures. So you might be purchasing a two-year bond, a five-year bond, a 10-year, a 30-year, but essentially your interest payment or coupon payment is fixed over that period of time. But bonds do trade uh, in an open market. So the prices of those bonds will fluctuate up and down based on supply and demand throughout the time that, that you hold the bond. Um, essentially, there's an inverse relationship between bond prices and bond yields. So if bond prices rise, then the yields will drop because your coupon payment is fixed. And if bond prices decrease, um, then the bond yields will increase um, because, again, your, your payment is fixed. Now, for a lot of people, they find this confusing. Um, if you buy a bond, it's not that your coupon payment is changing. But just rather, if you bought a bond, say, at 3% yield and the rates on comparable bonds in the market right now are 5%, the price of your bond has to adjust to make that competitive against those other bonds in the open market. So that's why we say the yield has declined. Your payment remains the same, um, but the value of your bond will decline just so that your bond can be comparable um, in the open market with, with other bonds. So why have long-term bond yields spiked or just bond yields really in general, but particularly we've seen this um, more on the, on the long-term end of the bonds? Um, well, one is really it comes down to supply and demand. So on the demand side, uh, the market is expecting that interest rates are going to remain high or go higher at this point. And this has a lot to do with economic data that we've been getting, as well as comments from the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada. So one way to look at this is if you own a, a long-term bond, um, if interest rates decline in the future, then the value, the price of your bonds are going to increase. So there's an advantage to owning long-term bonds if you think that interest rates are going to decline. However, if you think that interest rates are going to remain flat or interest rates are going to increase, there's less of a reason to own long-term bonds. And that's especially the case because right now, um, Short-term bonds actually provide higher yields than long-term bonds. So the two-year bond is providing a higher yield, for example, than the 10-year or the 30-year. Uh, this is called an inverted yield curve. We've talked about that on different segments as well. Uh, it's generally not a good sign for the economy, um, but essentially this is how, it, how it's working, is, is a lot of investors are looking at long-term bonds as less desirable than short-term bonds and also higher risk if interest rates were to increase from here, um, or really even if they're just to remain flat, then there's less reason to own them. Um, Short-term bonds, on the other hand, they, they're not as volatile. The prices are not as volatile as long-term bonds. So if you see interest rates go up or interest rates go down, it has much less of an impact on the price of short-term bonds. Uh, there's also the increase in supply. So this really comes down to um, government deficits, to government debt. Increasing government debt increases the supply, supply of bonds on the market. Um, so that's you know, another factor as well. Um, more supply essentially means lower price. But the real question is, what does all of this mean for investors? Well, for fixed income investors, this is a potential opportunity to lock into bonds with higher yields. 
Um, so as well, there's the potential for price gains if investors wanted to lock into uh, longer term bonds because because if rates fall in the near future or over the course of the maturity of that bond, um, you're going to get price gains out of that as well. But even on the shorter term end of the of the of the bond um, yield maturity spectrum, you know you're still going to get you're still getting very high yields here. As I said, the short term yields are actually higher than the long term yields right now. So this is a uh, an opportunity, at least in the short to midterm for fixed income investors, or even long-term if they wanted to lock into to longer-term bonds. Um, but for the economy and for the stock market in general and for consumers, um, higher interest rates and bond yields are generally a net negative. So companies and consumers are facing higher borrowing costs. Uh, we all feel the pinch of that. Anybody who's had a, has a mortgage on a variable rate, anybody who's looking to refinance, uh, this is a major factor. If you're a business and you want to invest in an acquisition, um, that will require some debt, or you want to invest in a new product um, that require debt. Uh, the the range of investments that make sense in a higher rate environment are going to be much less. So in, so companies will essentially invest less, and it's generally a net negative for the stock market as well as uh, due to the fact that um, with bond markets potentially higher offering higher returns that attract some capital eventually away from the stock market and into the bond markets. Now dividend stocks in particular. Um, have been under pressure in the in, in the current bond environment um, because they indirectly compete with fixed income for yield focused investors. So if you're an investor who is looking to um, who is looking to generate yield out of your portfolio, income out of your portfolio, uh, you generally you have a choice between fixed income. You also have a choice between dividend stocks. Now, particularly if it's a dividend stock that isn't growing, that isn't increasing its dividend payment, a lot of investors will see those two options as comparable. So higher yields in the bond market mean that more capital will flow from dividend stocks to bonds, um, which will, of course, um, reduce prices of some select dividend stocks. So how about investing in fixed income? What, what types of rates is the bond market offering right now? So if there's different ways of doing this. One would just be to take the simple approach and purchase a GIC. So a GIC, a one-year GIC right now is paying uh, about 5.1%. A, um, a five-year GIC is paying about 4.3%. So th this is a massive increase from almost zero returns um, going back to two years ago. Now, one thing that investors do have to be cautious about, particularly when they're comparing fixed income versus dividend stocks is something called reinvestment risk. Now, reinvestment risk is a significant concern with, with fixed income. Um, and I'll just use the example of the GICs here. So if you get a one-year term GIC, you get 5.1%, you may be very happy with that. But after a year, that GIC is going gonna, is gonna to mature and you have no idea what rates are going to be at that point in time. I mean, rates could fall significantly. Maybe at that point in time, GICs are only uh, only paying 2%. And you have to reinvest that capital into another income investment, presumably, without having any idea of what the future rate is going to be. This is often why longer term bonds and fixed income investments are, are attractive to people that want a little more security and visibility of their income stream. Another way to uh, invest in fixed income would just be through a bond ETF. So one that we've talked about a few times with uh, people that are interested in bond ETFs is ZAG. So this is just the BMO government, um, government of Canada bond ETF. It's about as safe as you can get for a bond ETF. These are all government of Canada bonds, different maturities. You can see the yield here is 3.7%. So this is less than a GIC. 
Uh, why is that? Well, the GIC is representing the current rate of interest, whereas a bond ETF, they hold bonds of a wide range of different maturities. So a lot of the bonds that they own were issued years ago when interest rates were much lower. Eventually, those bonds will mature, and then the, and then this ETF will take that capital, reinvest in new bonds. And if rates are still high, then you'll gradually see that yield trickle up. So um, one so one comparison here is that GICs right now are paying a higher rate, but you have far higher reinvestment risk because you don't know what the rate is going to be in a year or two or five even when um, when those GICs expire. Whereas because a bond ETF like Zag owns um, a wide variety of different maturities, you are exposed to some reinvestment risk or they are as they're managing the portfolio, but it's much smoother. Um, it doesn't change as it doesn't fluctuate nearly as much. So how does this compare with, with dividend stocks, fixed income versus dividend stocks? So there's a few comparisons that I want to make here. Um, one is that, of course, from a income security perspective, Fixed income are generally safer from the perspective that dividends are not an obligation of the company. So if you are if you own a company that pays a dividend, um, there's no legal obligation for that company to continue paying that dividend. Of course, there are companies with tremendous track records of paying consistent dividends and growing them. And the way you manage this risk is by investing in strong companies, but it's not a legal obligation. Whereas for fixed income investments, it is a legal obligation. Um, but with the fixed income investment, the, in, the interest payments are set and you also have that reinvestment risk where you don't know what the interest rate is going to be once that, that fixed income security matures. Whereas for dividend stocks, there are many dividend stocks that are quality companies and they're growing their dividend over time. So in, in, the difference being that your income stream is actually increasing, whereas with uh, interest income, um, it could decrease when certainly if, if interest rates decline. Um, so growing companies on the dividend side, if you're investing in strong growing companies that are increasing your dividend, you can get capital appreciation. You can get capital appreciation from bonds, but that's always a factor of the interest rates going up and down. And it's not something that you should expect. Um, and you don't get any capital appreciation if you hold those bonds to maturity. Um, another thing is that dividend growth stocks, they can offset some of the impacts of inflation with growth, whereas Although inflation, expected inflation is expected to be embedded into the yield that a fixed income security provides, any unexpected inflation is a major risk for fixed income. So very different securities here. A lot of times dividend stocks and fixed income get compared directly, and it's just a yield versus yield comparison. Um, but if you're investing in the right companies, uh, dividend growth stocks can provide uh, different areas of return including di growing dividends and, and capital appreciation, whereas that's something that fixed income cannot do. Okay. A good summer. Any comments, you guys? Yeah. Uh, I just think, or go on. Right. I, I was just going to plug, we have a cash report as well, just have where to park your cash for a time being, which goes over some of the options that Aaron talked about as well as a few more. And there's a link in the description of the YouTube video. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. Um, I was just going to say, like, maybe we should eventually do, maybe I'll do it, but uh, just kind of a duration segment to show uh, or to explain kind of what duration is maybe, maybe as an educational segment. But no, I think that uh, you did a good job there, Aaron. Um, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good summary and, and it provides the, the, 
the juxtaposition between the growth that you can get in a dividend growth stock versus the kind of fixed payment you're getting in a, in a bond. Right. And, and yep. I'm over the long term. I, if people eschew dividend stocks when rates rise often, but um, you know, you're not looking over the next year with an investment in a dividend growth stock, you're looking where your yield can be over time. As we've said so many times, um, if you have a stock that is growing that dividend, you buy at a certain price, they keep increasing that dividend over time. Your effective yield, it may start at 4% or you know 3% or 5%, but you look back 5, 10, 15 years in the future, you can get 10, 15, 20% effective yields that you're getting on these businesses that you're, you're not going to get that growth in a bond. So I yeah, mean, that, that I would be the two. I think Warren Buffett's effective yield, I mean, I'm pulling this just from, you know, the air, but I think isn't his effective yield on Coca-Cola like 50%. So every single year he is earning 50% on his initial. Just on the dividend. Just on the dividend in Coca-Cola, which is tremendous. You know, like imagine, imagine. Yeah, no, I mean, and you can achieve those type of returns with uh, great dividend growth stocks. I mean, we've seen something along those lines. That type of yield requires decades of ownership. But of, I, of it, course, yeah. I mean, if we look at Brookfield infrastructure, um, when we recommended it in 2011, it was about 950 per unit, and it's yeah. paid since then uh, over $20 yeah. per unit in in income distributions, and it's continuing yeah. to pay a nice yield, grow its income distribution, and the stock has increased in value by by several times it's it's at about just under 40 dollars right now so yeah and even on the small cap side a company like dynacore had no yield when we originally bought it we had expected it to pay a dividend at some point they instituted a dividend i was around in the three percent range but now you know clients who bought back on the original recommendation the effective yield is you know eight nine percent in that range and we expect the dividend to increase next year likely the year after. And so you can start, you know, you're going to start to see a 10% effective yield over the next several years in that company. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it can happen. It's not just a textbook uh, example. These happen in the real world. If you have a great dividend growth stock and your time horizon is five, 10 to 15, 20 years plus, which it should be when you're investing in any good solid growth company. All right, let's move on to uh, VLAN. It's kind of a curious case here symbol VLN on TSX. Brett, you're going to take a look at this business. VLN, symbol VLN on the TSX, is a world-leading producer of highly engineered industrial valves, not just your normal tiny little valve. There are huge ones for stuff like nuclear reactors. They're the size of a person, many of them. The company serves various industries, including power generation, including nuclear, oil and gas, refining and petrochemicals, chemicals, LNG and cryogenics, pulp and paper, geothermal processes, and shipbuilding. The stock is currently trading at about 560 a share with a 120 Canadian market cap, being down roughly 5% year to date. However, the stock has had a much more eventful year than just a 5% change would imply. In February 2023, the shares skyrocketed to just under $13 a share following the announcement that FlowServe, symbol FLS on the New York exchange, was to acquire Velen at $13 a share, representing about a 100% premium to the prior day's trading. And it was already up a bit at that point. So compared to 30 days prior, it was well past even 100%. The acquisition was expected to be accretive within the year, as FlowServe expected 20 million US in cost synergies within the first two years. And it was expected to be accretive on adjusted EPS within the first year. 
closer of expected to leverage its network of customers with VLAN's product stack, which is why it expected significant synergies as well, which in turn resulted in the high acquisition premium with the expectation that the deal would close within Q2 of 2023. However, that did not happen. The acquisition was not to be. First, in August, the company announced that it had an extended timeline for the acquisition, causing the shares to drop to about $10 or so, as as regulatory approvals had not been obtained at that time. Then the death blow occurred in early October with the French regulators denying regulatory approval and would not approve regardless of any remedies that FlowServ could provide. The core reason is French regulators did not want a sale of a supplier for nuclear reactor parts coming under control of a U.S. company, but they did know that there were other factors besides nationality, but that was the big one. That caused the shares to fall back to the current range, about 560. So without the deal, does Velen have any value as an investment? During fiscal Q2 2024, which ended August, so you're looking more at the first half of 2023, the company had sales of 80.3 million, which is 18.7% higher than Q1, but 5.6% lower than Q2 23. Looking at a longer period of time, sales have been just relatively flat, but with quite a bit of volatility. I have a graph up which it goes back 20 years, and you can see it's been relatively flat, but year over year and quarter over quarter, you do have quite a bit of variance. Gap loss per share, so EPS was 10 cents versus a loss of 17 cents in the prior year. Similarly to revenue, we've seen really no progress on EPS over the past 20 years. In fact, it has deteriorated, if anything. We've shifted from where it's been previously profitable on a gap standard to now a loss relatively consistently. The balance sheet is relatively strong, but it's been deteriorating as they have been accruing those losses. The company has a net debt and leases position of 7.1 million with significantly with significant additional liquidity available through its credit facilities. The company does have lumpy cash flows as time is a payment, of much, and much of that is prepaid by company uh, uh, customers, which is a positive when it comes to cash flow management, but it is still lumpy as they are generally large sales. They'll receive the payment up front, and then nothing is really received from that customer after that. But it might take a year to produce the product. But like the revenue and the EPS, cash flows, and even it uh, as a product have had no sustained growth over the past 20 years or quarter over quarter, year over year. It just hasn't been sustained. As well, a major factor posing risk for the balance sheet is the company has an additional, they added an additional $56 million legal provision for lawsuit settlements, which related to its previous use of asbestos in its products. The significant increase is because the company is now accounting for unfiled lawsuits based on their expectation of additional lawsuit settlements in the future. So really, it's an actuarial expectation, so it can change quite a bit. It could end up being quite a bit higher, or it could not be realized at all. It's not an actual cash expense at this time. It's just what they are estimating it could be. So quickly looking at valuations, as the company does not have positive gap earnings, we're going to look at adjusted EV EBITDA, which removes the impact of the legal provision which comes out at about 4.4 times. However, if we treat the total 73.3 of the asbestos provision, which they did have some before their latest provision increase, uh, and if we treat that like debt or a reduction in cash, which effectively increases the enterprise value, 
that EV EBITDA is 7.7 times. That said, there's no guarantee, like I was saying, that these will be realized. They're actuarial expectations. So they could obviously change. It's really just to see if this is to occur, what would the valuation would look like. So our take after the acquisition of VLAND was blocked. The company was just not appealing into the no sustained growth across any metric. A balance sheet that could become significantly weaker due to the expected future settlements which could potentially increase leverage, of course. Also, you could take a lesson away from this, uh, holding your shares through a potential acquisition for those few extra percents. Remember, it was trading about twelve seventy. You go to about 13 bucks, so you're holding it for that $0.30 cent increase. It does carry risk. And in VLAN's case, it did materialize the downside risk, so you ended up losing $8 for $0.30 cent upside. And I'll open up to you guys after that. Yeah, I mean, I, I took a look at the acquisition back when it was announced because VLAN's come across my mm-hmm. my desk as a as an income stock in the past. And uh, I mean, if I owned it, I, I wouldn't have owned it based on the fundamentals to begin with, even at the lower price. But if I had owned it, I mean, I would have sold so quickly mm-hmm. into that acquisition announcement. It's I couldn't really understand the numbers in terms of it just didn't make sense. It looked like they were paying a lot for... Uh, you know, the financial performance that the company was able to achieve. But of course, they're not buying. I mean, a lot of times an acquisition is really based on more of a sum of parts and what those sum, what that sum of parts is worth to the acquirer. So because it's a company in a similar industry, tangential industry, you know, they're able to, to acquire customers, technology, other things that they can then integrate. So it's not, you know, maybe to, maybe to the acquirer, it made more sense. But to investors, I mean, if you owned it, you should have just sold. Uh, I wouldn't even own it at, at the current price. Yeah, that was a story. It had to be synergies because, mm-hmm. and and those are always, you know, uh, sometimes difficult to to really put a number on. But in, in this case, yeah, I mean, the, the company just, even if you look back 10 years, it did 540 million in revenue 10 years ago. Uh, just trailing 12 months is 484. There's not much growth. As Brett said, the cash flow, there is some, you know, it's lumpy. It's there. It's not there. Um, it, it this was a sum of parts valuation. Those are very difficult to do, uh, in terms of from our perspective. Now, an investment in it at this time would only be basically based on you speculating or an investor speculating on a future takeover. Um, it may or may not happen. Um, obviously, there's some regulatory risk to that happening right now. Um, and at this point. Uh, the management has really shown that over the past 10 years, all, all they've been able to do is produce a decreasing profit. So that's not something that we would look at. There may be a case here that, I mean, a price to sales is like 0.25 or something like that. So if you could get a margin out of this business, there should be an opportunity. You should be able to, like, that's a very low price to sales on this business. You should be able to pull some kind of margin out. But um, right now uh, the company has not been able to do that on a consistent basis. So the valuations are low and probably stay in this range until they can uh, focus on producing sustainable cash flow. I will add as well, since Aaron previously looked at VLAN in his income coverage, they've effectively removed the dividend. They're only paying three cents a year and it was completely removed during COVID. And they were already having issues before that. They dropped it from 10 cents a quarter to three cents a quarter. And now we're at the three cents a year. Mm-hmm. Well, they have no earnings to pay a dividend from, so that would have been the uh, a good choice. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunate for their investors. Yeah, it's interesting uh, to see this share yo yo up and down this year, but uh, really, it's it's in its current range. And other than like looking at price to sales or 
an adjusted EVD bid-to ratio. Now that's the justification where the price is now, uh, potentially based on speculation of another takeover. If they can allay those concerns from the French government, maybe there is a takeover at some point. But um, you know that's just pure speculation. We want to buy the business based on cash flow and growing that over time. We're not seeing that here. All right, Brennan, you're going to finally review RE Royalty, symbol RE on the TSX Venture, a company we sat down with last week in LA. I'll let you take it away. Yes, last and least. Just kidding. Last but not least. Okay. You or the um, company? Me, me, not the company. You're least? Well, yeah, you could say. Um so yeah, uh, we've highlighted RE as a monitor for clients in the past and have spoken with management about a year and a half ago while the stock was trading in the $1.05 range. Um, but like Ryan said, following our recent interview with RE's CEO in LA last week, I thought I would briefly discuss the stock on the podcast. So RE Royalties, RE on the TSX Venture, uh, currently trading at a price of $0.64, cents, has about a $27 million market cap and a yield of about 6.7%. Uh, so the company acquires revenue-based royalties from renewable energy generation facilities by providing a non-dilutive royalty financing solution to privately held and publicly traded renewable energy generation and development companies. So uh, their royalty portfolio currently has over 120 royalties with primary exposure to US and Canada, but also has some exposure to Mexico and Chile as well. Now, just looking at some operational updates, um, on October 4th, so this is actually, I believe, the day that we actually spoke with, uh, with Bernard, the CEO, um, the company announced that they entered into a royalty-based financing agreement with Revolve Acquisition, uh, who is basically working on a project for wind, solar, and battery, where uh, RE will provide them $4 million Canadian uh, and receive about a 12% interest rate on that. On August 8th, uh, they entered into a royalty-based financing agreement with Butler Corporation for their solar battery, um, providing a US $3.2 million at a 12% interest rate and a 10-year royalty of 5% gross revenues. Now, the last deal that I'll just discuss here, the recent deal was on May 25th of 2023, they entered into a royalty agreement on 100 megawatts of output from a wind project located in Alberta. Uh, they didn't actually disclose or I didn't see who it was, um, where they know they're going to receive monthly royalty for a 12 month period of, uh, or sorry, 12 year period of approximately 132,000 uh, per annum. Now, um, on April 3rd, so for financing, where are they getting their funds? Uh, April 3rd of 2023, they closed their Series 3 green bond uh, for gross proceeds of about 16.4 million Canadian as well as 1.24 million US. Um, and they are paying a rate of about 9% on uh, this Series 3 green bonds, uh, where typically Bernard said that, you know, if they were just going to, uh, you know, have a corporate bond, typically they'd be paying about 14% interest. Uh, so clearly that is why they're going with the green bonds. And I just wanted to highlight this. This isn't recent, of course, but uh, the last time the company diluted shareholders was uh, June 15th of 2022. Um, and Bernard did note that this wasn't primarily due to, you know, needing capital, but just because a large fund wanted to take a position in the stock. And a few notes that I have here at the end, just from our conversation, uh, he noted that they are on track to do about six transactions this year. 
they have about 16 million in cash to deploy. So they're looking to add about 10 million in revenue with that cash. Uh, and they do not want to raise equity at these levels, but continue to be attracted to green bonds or issuing green bonds. Uh, and insider ownership is at about 25%. So of course, financially, uh, the business has performed well and why we originally pulled out the stock in our CDAR sweeps, uh, as in the last quarter, revenue is up 290% year over year. But this is primarily due to a gain on a royalty buyback of 1.5 million. Uh, so if we, in, if we exclude this, revenue was still up over 100%. Now, looking at EPS, it also increased by 100% to two cents per share. But again, this was influenced by the large increase from the royalty buyback. Uh, and historically, we have seen the company jump in and out of accounting earnings, as you can see here uh, on the screen if you're watching on YouTube. Now, the balance sheet appears reasonable with net debt to adjusted EBITDA of about four times. Um, and, and overall, I would say that the financials have been trending in the right direction. But we will be uh, booking another call with Bernard, the CEO, to get a little bit more clarity on a couple questions. Uh, number one, what percent of the finance income uh, that you're reporting is actually classified as royalties? As you can see here, they break out royalty revenue compared to finance income. Um, you know, so that finance income, there are, you know, normal loans in there that they would be extending as well. Now, management told us that the reason for the finance income versus the royalty income is because any fixed payments to RE through a royalty is included as finance income because of accounting standards. Uh, but we need to kind of dig into this a little bit further. And number two, our second question is how many of the royalties in the portfolio have a buyback provision? Um, as we've said on the podcast before, a tricky thing with some of these royalty companies is that the high quality royalties end up getting bought out while the more risky, less quality ones remain on the company's balance sheet. Uh, so a little bit more clarity uh, or we want a little bit more clarity there. Um, so overall, at this time, we continue to monitor the stock and I will be booking that call with Bernard uh, and our team uh, to see if he can give us a little bit more clarity on the financials. Uh, and we will likely be including RE in one of our upcoming comprehensive reports for uh, small cap clients. Now, not necessarily as a buy, but certainly at least as, as a monitor. We are uh, intrigued by the business to say. And I'll open it up to you guys. Yeah, no, it was an interesting interview. I think you're muted, Aaron. I was just going to say it'll be interesting to dig into this uh, this company further. It's um it, it I mean if you just look at the financial performance face value there's been a pretty significant amount of growth so we have been following it for years it's been early stage um still is early stage but certainly would like to learn more about uh about the company and its future growth potential yeah you bet yeah and and generally speaking this is a general uh issue that we've had with some royalties in the past is um, some of the businesses essentially would invest in companies um, and you know take a royalty on a business and the best companies in their portfolio would have the option over time as they increase their cash flow, the better they did, they would buy out the royalty. So you were left with good companies buying out their royalties in some of these structures and the poor companies they'd either double down on or continue to invest in them. And you'd left with a weakening portfolio of companies over time. Um, now, that doesn't happen into like a streaming royalty company in the uh, gold sector, for example. Like they're not buying out those. Those are basically perpetual royalties. Uh, but in this space, uh, outside of that segment, you've seen them be bought out. 
And over time, a lessening of the quality of the companies that are in that portfolio that you're getting royalties on. Now, I believe that comp this company is trying to address that type of concern. Uh, but, you know, it's something that we have to be comfortable with looking five to 10 to 20 years forward to see how this company builds its portfolio, because ultimately it's only as good as the companies that it bases it has its royalties on and if those companies are weak over time this company does not do well um even if it looks good based on the current payments that they're getting because those have to be sustainable payments over the long term so that's just a general review of some of the things we've seen in royalty-based companies yep. i think that's gonna close out our show did anybody have anything further on re or are we done we're good all right. As always, I'd like you to continue. If you're watching this on YouTube, smash that subscribe button, get those numbers up. Uh, we'll continue to produce this content on a weekly basis. If you're listening to this on iTunes, rate and review us on there. Only positive reviews, of course. And as always, I'd love to wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.